0: The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect.
1: Our teaching text this morning comes from Ecclesiastes 12, 9 through 14. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings they are given by one shepherd my son beware of anything beyond these of making many books there is no end and much study is a weariness of the flesh the end of the matter all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, every good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
0: Let's ask the nice, Lord to be with us. Lord, thank you once again. What a privilege it is to get to be with your people, to get to gather together as worshipers to continue our worship in a unique, special, ordained by you way where we get to sing, as your people have done for thousands of years, as we get to hear your word, as we get to take of the bread and the cup. It's a privilege, it's a gift. Lord, we thank you um, this weekend in particular, Lord, for the men and women who have fought for our country, who have served and laid down their lives to protect us. Lord, we give you praise and honor for that. Lord, I pray that you would do what you've been doing for so long and will continue to do until Christ returns, that you would take your word and you would push it into our hearts, past the excuses, past the temptations, past the denials, past the apathy, you would speak in a life-changing way. We love you. We need you. How desperately we need you. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Well, a few weeks ago, Lindsay and I watched through a documentary called Pepsi, Where's My Jet? Anybody seen it? If you're not familiar, it's a docu-series on Netflix about how about 20, 30 years ago, Pepsi ran this campaign where you could buy Pepsi products, get points, and then turn those points in for Pepsi swag. It was very 1980s and 1990s. And as a joke, one of the commercials Pepsi ran for this campaign said, without a disclaimer, that if you could submit 7 million Pepsi points, they would give you a military fighter jet. So long story short, a teenager in the Northeast came up with a plan to collect, and did so, collected 7 million points. And the whole rest of the documentary series is all about whether or not Pepsi actually has to give him the military jet. And so the whole series just sets up this tension. Will this kid get the jet from Pepsi or not? And I won't spoil it for you, mainly because I don't know how it actually ends. It's a four-part series, and I fell asleep with about 15 minutes to go in the four- Fourth part. And that feeling is a little bit about, a little bit how, if you stop the book of Ecclesiastes short, how it's going to feel. For the first 11 and a half chapters, Ecclesiastes sets up this tension. Where is the good life found under the sun? What does it mean to live a flourishing life with God? But if you miss the ending, then you will not only never have the tension resolved, but also, I will argue, actually misread and misinterpret and misunderstand the whole rest of the book. Because it's important to remember, like we established week one, that the preacher whose words we've been covering for this whole series, is not actually the author of the book. Remember, the author of Ecclesiastes is someone reflecting on the words of the preacher and using it, as he mentions here in our passage today, as words of instruction and a teaching moment for his son. And so here at the end of the book, the author inserts himself back into the book. You see this switch clearly in verses 8 and 9. Look at this, verse 8. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. So this is actually a word-for-word repetition of Ecclesiastes 1, verse 2. The preacher's sermon starts and ends the same way. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And then in verse 9, it switches back to the author to close out the book. He says this, besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great Care. So here at the end of the book, the author is inserting himself back into the narrative to give us his thirty thousand foot summary of what this whole thing was about. And here's what he's going to give us. To be honest, it's kind of a, a two part sermon today. I tried my best to make them fit. It's kind of just a two parts. So here's what we're going to do. First, is I want to look at the purposes of Ecclesiastes. I want to help make sure we understood what we've been doing over the past six weeks as we've studied this book together. And then second, we're going to close as the author closes with a summarizing conclusion. So we're going to talk about the purposes of Ecclesiastes and then we'll close with the summarizing conclusion of the book. Purposes, summarizing conclusions. Very simple. You got it. Number one, start with the purposes of Ecclesiastes. Why was this book written and what should it do for us? Well, the author is going to give us three, three specific and descriptive purposes for the book. He starts with the first one in verse 10. He says, the preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly he wrote words of truth. So the first purpose for this book of Ecclesiastes was to satisfy us to satisfy us. The author says the preacher sought to find words of delight, or more literally translated words of pleasure. These words are good and pleasing and delightful. That's what this book, Ecclesiastes, is about, according to the author. It's here for our delight, for our satisfaction. In other words, these 12 chapters were meant to lead us into further joy, Which you might immediately think, what? (laughs) Like, are you serious? Like, I've been around for the last six weeks. I've read this book. Like, this does not immediately jump into joy for me. It's been more about evil and injustice and vanity and death, not satisfaction, delight, and joy. But that's what we've been trying to show over the past few weeks, how Ecclesiastes lands us every time, if we have eyes to see it, back in joy. That underlying all of these painful words, and they are painful, more on that in a second, is a deeper invitation to joy that is truly joy. Christian joy. Joy as we've defined it previously as a pervasive sense of well-being infused with hope because of the goodness of God. That's been underneath this entire book. That's been underneath this entire series. An invitation back to a pervasive sense of well-being infused with hope because of the goodness of God. That despite our circumstances, despite the unfairness of the world, despite the vanity of life under the sun, that God is still good. and So we can still be a people of joy. And so one of the gifts of this book is to lead us into that by helping us see life under the sun by itself cannot offer me what my heart craves, true and lasting joy. And then it grounds us back in the reality of God, helps us see the beauty of what he's doing in our lives and in the world. But that wasn't without its pain points. And that's the second purpose. The second purpose of Ecclesiastes was not just to satisfy, but to sting, to sting, Look at verse 11 with me. The words of the wise are like goads. Now in case you're not familiar with ancient agriculture, because <laughs> I wasn't. Let me show you what a goad is. I got a picture for us. So a goad was a tool used in ancient agriculture and it was often this long rod with at least one pointy sharp edge, sometimes a hook like that as well. What farmers would use a goad for is that they ha- as they had oxen plowing their crops to make sure those oxen didn't stop short or go too far or turn left or turn right to make sure they would plow in a straight line, farmers would poke them with This goat. And the goal was that this tool would induce enough pain to this foolish, stubborn animal to keep it going in the right direction. That's the whole purpose of a goat. And that's what the author says some of these words are meant to do. There are words in this book that make us and made us wince and grimace, that made us say ouch at times, that made us have hard, honest looks at the painful side of life under the sun. I've had a number of pastoral conversations with folks in our church over the past seven weeks who have shared some version of this experience as we've journeyed through the book of Ecclesiastes together. I've had a number of conversations where folks would say, man, this book is just, is hard. Like it's making me look at some things I don't want to look at. It's bringing some stuff up in my heart I'd rather not deal with. It's, it's making me look at some things that I just kind of want to ignore or not accept. And, and to be honest with you, this has been painful for me too. For those of you that know me well, you know one of the the key sin struggles of my life is to want to be like God. Like one of the key struggles of my life is to want to think that I can organize and systemize and control my life to get the desired outputs that I want for myself. And so this book has been extremely convicting and challenging for me. Extremely painful at times to recognize, oh yeah, I am in fact not God. I'm not in control. And that's hard to remember. God is God. I am not. He controls all things. And so the Holy Spirit's been using this book in my life, as I hope he has for you, to poke and to prod and to sting, to help make sure we're on the path towards Jesus. Because we as humans, shocker, can be sinful and stubborn. Can we not? Like Jesus himself calls us sheep, right? I don't know if you know much about sheep, but sheep are kind of stupid. They get lost They get themselves into all sorts of trouble. They run away. They know the shepherd is the one who protects them and feeds them. They they so often just kind of go about their own way. And Jesus says, that's what you are like, humans. It's a part of the beauty and the gift of Ecclesiastes is to poke us and prod us so that it hurts a little bit so that we go, oh yeah, this is the flourishing way. This is life with God. So it satisfies us, it stings us, and then third, it stabilizes us. Stabilizes us. Verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed, are the collected sayings. You see, you live too long under the sun, things get to be a bit, uh, in the words of my toddler, wibbly wobbly, right? Like you just live long enough on the earth, there's something that's keenly disorienting about our experience of life under the sun. The world draws you ever so subtly to chase after the wrong thing, to to miss God's presence in your life, to forget your true identity in Christ Jesus, to not be grounded in what he speaks and declares over you as your identity. And inevitably, if you start doing those things long enough, you kind of just a little bit veer off. Eventually, you start living in what is best described as unreality. You start viewing the world upside down and thinking it's actually right side up. You start thinking maybe the world is right and God is wrong. You know, maybe, maybe the Bible's sexual ethic actually is outdated. Or maybe, maybe God's wrong. Maybe the world actually does revolve around me. Maybe I I can find satisfaction on earth without God, or maybe suffering is meaningless, or maybe God is absent, or maybe he is not good, Or, or maybe the purpose of life really is what the preacher says, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. We follow along this course long enough, there's something disorienting that makes us think right side, upside down is actually right side up, and so the third purpose the author tells us is to stabilize us. To turn us right side up again, to ground us back in what is actually true about God and the world around us. It's a brutally honest book that forces us to be in return brutally honest about life, about how it all works, and God who is at the center of it all. Satisfy, sting, stabilize. These words are a gift, but you have to notice they're not just a gift from the preacher. Like these are not just the musings of some skeptical, cynical philosopher king that you can choose to take or leave if you like them or not. These words, the words of Ecclesiastes, are the words of God himself. Look at verse 11. Let me prove it. He says this, they are given by one shepherd. See that? These words are given by one shepherd. The shepherd here is not the preacher, it's God. God, who is referred to as the true shepherd in numerous places in the Old Testament, right? Most notably the famous Psalm 23, the Lord is my what? Shepherd. So the fact that these words of wisdom are given by the one shepherd means it's not just the preacher who gives us these words. He's writing as one who writes on behalf of God. Meaning, Ecclesiastes, like the rest of the Bible, like the rest of the Holy Scriptures, are from God. These are his words. He has revealed himself to us and spoken to us in his word. And so that means when Ecclesiastes stings us and stabilizes us and satisfies us, Ecclesiastes is doing what all of scripture is meant to do. See that? Because here's one of the painful realities that you have to learn if you were to start following Jesus for any length of time. If you want, this is the lesson you have to learn. If you want to know, love, and follow Jesus more 10, 20, 30 years from now, as you do today, which I hope is the goal of all of us, right? That 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now, we'd be more in love with Jesus than we are today. If that's your goal, then you have to let the Bible not just be a comfort, but also a challenge. Because here's what happens if you study through church history. Church history throughout Christians, because we're sinful and we get things wrong sometimes, we're always overreacting. To trace church history, we're always going, okay, this is what we did for a long time, we realize there's some bad things about it, and so we jump over here. And what happens, what has happened with the scriptures, is if you track church history through like the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, it was predominantly this is the the boom. I don't know what the word is, right? Like it just thumps people. It's like, hey, this is God's word, thump, thump, thump. Like if you grew up in church like I did in the 90s, this was often used, do you know, not as an invitation to encounter God, but as a rule book to get right or wrong. And so what we've done though in Christianity because we always react, we always are swinging the pendulum as we've gone, okay, we reject that and so now we wholesale go, this is only for comfort. This is only to, hey, if you're anxious, if you're stressed out, if you're going through a hard time, you read the Psalms. Everybody loves the Psalms. 30 years ago, no one cared about the Psalms. (laughs) Except for a guy named Eugene Peterson. That was it. Now we're like, Psalms. You read Matthew 11? Yoke is easy and light. This is Light. Let me ask you, is the Bible meant to challenge us and point us into holiness, or is it meant to comfort us with the presence of God? It's both. So we have to let the Word of God do what the Word of God has done for thousands of years. Comfort? Absolutely. God has given us a revelation of himself. And also challenge us into the ways of Jesus, into holiness. And this is what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 4, right? For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. They're supposed to be, as you open up God's word, as you spend time with him, as we sit under the preaching of God's word on Sundays, there's supposed to be some words in here that make you sit up and take notice. There's supposed to be some times where you walk out of here going, I'm simultaneously more in love with Jesus and comforted by his presence. And also Oof, that hurt a little bit. That's the goal of God's word, that he would shape us and mold us by the power of his spirit and the power of his scriptures into people who look more like Jesus. And Ecclesiastes is scripture, is a part of God's word. And so just like the rest of scripture, it's meant to do the same thing, to sting us when we're rebellious to stabilize us when we're foolish, and to satisfy us when we're brought low. We've seen this, right? Let's just consider how we've seen this over the past few weeks. So week one, we looked at how life under the sun without God is meaningless. It's vanity, right? It's all vanity. Ouch. (laughs) That should hurt. It stings us to be honest about the fact that life under the sun is painful and cyclical and elusive and monotonous and mundane and short. But as we remember those things, even when they're painful, we're stabilized to remember God is here. He's present. He's come from life's outside the sun to enter into life under the sun to give us true and deeper joy in the monotony and mundane. Or week two, we did the vanity of an endless search for more, and it stung, right? It was painful to think about all the ways we're grasping for life that seems just out of reach. But as we consider those things, it stabilizes us into contentment, to stop grasping for more, but to be invited into a G- deeper joy that comes through satisfaction in and with the gifts God has given us. Or week three, the seasons of your life, good and bad, are going to come. Your desire to control them, for me personally, painful. It stings. It's hard. I want to be in control, but it stabilizes us back into deep trust of God who lives and dwells outside of our seasons. A deeper joy that comes from learning to trust him in the highs and lows of our life. Week four, the vanity of a me-centric life. We saw some ways that we in our own sin break flourishing communities apart, but we were stabilized. We were grounded back in God's design from the beginning. A deeper joy that comes with sacrificial love and belonging. Or week five, life is unfair. If you sign up to follow Jesus, you're signing up not for a pain-free, struggle-free life. In fact, you're probably going to suffer more if you try to follow him than if you don't. (sighs) Ah, that stings. But it grounds us back in the reality that our hope is not in fairness here on earth, but in the God who will judge all things in eternity. Or last week, we're all going to die, right? Vanity of vanities, it all ends in death, nothing lasts forever, and that was painful, and yet once again through that sting, we were invited into a deeper joy that comes from the reality that though life ends in death, for the Christian, death ends in life. Eternal life with God. Death has no final sting. It has no final victory. So I hope hope you see the gift this book has been. In each hard lesson, in each painful lesson, in each sting, in each poke and prod of the goat, in each stabilizing force like nails, that we have been centered back in the reality that God is here. So we receive his presence, and we give ourselves to those same three things we've been saying every week, right? A people to belong with, a place to belong, and good work to do. Why? Because God is here. So that's the purposes. I told you there's no good transition. Part two, summarizing conclusion. So that's the purposes. That's why this book was here. I hope you see that. I hope you've received that. I hope in the future when you go back to this book, you'll see that. But let's talk a little bit about where do we land? Summarizing conclusion, in light of all of that, let's, let's you know tie the proverbial bow. Here's the summary conclusion from the author. He says, do you want to know where all this is leading? One statement Two commands, verse 13. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Do you want to know what the good life is? Do you want to know what it means to live well in the finite time God gives you? Do you want to know what a life of joy and flourishing with God looks like? Two things, fear God do what he says. That's it, right? Fear God, do what he says. Let's just be honest for a second. This whole life with God thing, living with God thing is not at its core complicated. Like there are parts of it that are hard, complicated. Like there are parts of your life where you're going to need nuance and you're going to need wisdom. How do I step into this situation? How do I follow God in this? How do I nuance this response? Like there are going to be parts that are tricky. Yes, absolutely. And amen. But at the core, it is not actually complicated. Do you want to live as a Christian? Do you want to live the good life with God? Do you want a robust flourishing life with the creator of the universe and the lover of your soul? Fear God and do what he says. That's it. It's a distinct lack of amens in the room right now. <laughs> That's it. We're going to close and pray, right? Fear God and do what he says. Abundantly simple. Incredibly, incredibly difficult. Right? Fear God and do what he says. Okay. Whoa. Whoa. Actually getting that into our lives, like that's the battle of the Christian life. More and more, in my experience as a pastor, I find myself having conversation after conversation with others and with myself, that the disconnect is most often not knowing what to do. It's doing what you know to do, or not doing what you know not to do. That's the battle of the Christian life. Because Here's why. We much prefer not fear and obedience, but freedom and independence. That's the tension of our souls, that the good life our sinful nature wants and our world preaches is not fear and obedience. It's freedom and independence, the ability to do what I want, when I want, where I want, with who I want, and then and therefore get the results I want. Freedom and independence. Don't tell me what to do. Don't hold me back. We said this before. The law of our day is autonomy, right? Auto meaning self, namas meaning law. We are all laws unto ourselves. I'm king, I'm in charge, I obey one person, me. My whims, my desires, my interpretations of reality, my beliefs, my goals, my feelings, my heart, what it wants, me, 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 me. Total freedom, autonomy, and independence, that's the good life. And the the author of Ecclesiastes would say, no, it's a lie. That's not where the good life is found, which I know is a really difficult thing to even believe or desire or want to understand or want to agree with because we're modern-day Americans right? I mean, it's at the core of who we are as a country. Declaration of Independence, right? Life, liberty, and what? The pursuit of happiness. What's at the core of who we are told to be as modern secular Westerners? Free and independent. The author of Ecclesiastes would say, no, you want the good life? It's fear and obedience. Fear the Lord Do what he says. Now, let's talk about this, because I want to make sure we get this right, right? This is the core duty of man. Let's talk about what this means to fear God. Let's get this correct, okay? This fear, as theologian Sinclair Ferguson describes it, is what he would call a familial fear, a familial fear, a family fear. It's the fear that corresponds with the reverence, awe, and love a child has for the best of earthly fathers. In other words, it's not fear that makes us run from, it's fear that rather makes us run to. It's fear that learns to see God rightly and therefore have no choice but to see him and then be stopped in our tracks. That's what it means to fear the Lord, right? To fear the Lord is to be stunned by his presence. To fear the Lord is to be captured by just how awesome and big and mighty he is. To fear the Lord is to know that (gasps) that was a gift from him. (sighs) That was a gift from him. That every single breath you take right? The breast you're taking right now so that you can sit here and be bored by me. That is a gift from God. Every single thing. To fear the Lord is to know that his wisdom is so beyond you and so infinite that just a drop of it would make your head explode. To fear the Lord is to know that his ways are righteous and pure and true and good, even if you would have chose something different for yourself. To fear the Lord is to desire with every waking moment you're given to please him and to love him and to be with him. And that's what Ecclesiastes has been pointing us to all along, that God is God, so fear him. I mean, there's been two underlying currents with this whole book, right? The first one we've pushed hard in. Life is vanity. Life under the sun is meaningless. How do we live in light of that? But there's been this other subcurrent happening in every single chapter. I wonder if you noticed it. Look at this with me. Chapter 2, verse 25, for apart from God, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? Or chapter 3, verse 14, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. Or chapter 5, verse 2, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. Why? For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. Or chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made one as well as the other. So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Chapter 9, verse 1, but all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Or one more, 11.5, as you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, you do not know the work of God who makes everything. Like, do you see the author's point? The end of all matters, the summary of the book, God is bigger than you, and he does what he wants, and he's present and active in your life, so fear and obey him the whole summary of this book. Do you see, the author says, how big the preacher told us God is? Do you see how in control of the world God is? Do you see how God does whatever he pleases? Do you see how God gives whatever he wants to give? And do you see how this bigness drives you to run away from vanity under the sun and towards life with him? Like, how how do you stop striving for more? That was the question in week two. How do you stop striving for more? You fear the one who provides for those who seek him. How do you relinquish your grasping for control over the future seasons of your life? You fear the one who stands outside of time and orders all things. How do you press on when life seems unfair? You fear the one who will right all wrongs and took the ultimate wrong on the cross in your place. How do you face death, vanity of vanities, and stop living for the temporal? You fear the one who will judge in eternity and who alone holds the power to grant eternal life. This is the whole duty of man. This is everything. Fear the Lord and do what he says. Why? Why? Verse 14. For God will bring every deed into judgment, with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Why do we fear the Lord and do what he says? Because God will bring every deed, even the secret ones, good or evil, into judgment. Here's here's the picture. The day you were born, God hit record. On the day you die, he'll hit stop and then rewind and then play. And each and every thought, each and every word, each and every action, even those you will take the secrets of to your grave will be judged by him. I mean, just take a minute. I know it's a holiday weekend. Just take a minute and let that sit with all of the frightening reality it's meant to sit with. God will judge every single deed. Therefore, what's the implication of that? Well, I think there's two. The first is that this means every single deed matters more than you ever know. If God will judge every single deed, then that means every single deed you do matters more than you could ever know. No. This brings us all the way back to week one, right? If there is no God, if there is no life outside or after life under the sun, then we shout the loudest with the preacher, yep, all is vanity. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But the author says, no, there is a God. This life is not all there is. There is a God in heaven who rules and reigns. There is a life to come. One day the dead will be raised, and every person who has ever lived will stand before God, and he will judge. So therefore, it's not that none of it matters, but rather that all of it matters. He will bring every deed into judgment, which means every single deed you do matters. Those 10 minutes you spent to get on the floor and play with the toddler matter. That conversation you paused to have that, you paused your work to have with your coworker who was going through the difficult day matters. That friendship you went out of your way and spent time and energy to start and cultivate matters. That lawn you mowed and then mowed again two weeks later and then mowed again two weeks later matters. That meal you prepared for your family or your friends matters. That off-handed sarcastic comment you made at someone else's expense matters. That text you knew you should have sent to encourage someone but you withheld matters. That sex you initiated or withheld from your spouse matters. It all matters. The message of Ecclesiastes is not that nothing matters but that everything does what we did, how we did it, and why we did it will all have eternal significance. Every deed in the universe is subject to the final verdict of a righteous God who knows every secret. Therefore, the things we do and do not do today will all be seen in light of that final judgment. Every single deed you do or do not do to love the people and place and work God has given you matters, which means it's desperately important to give ourselves fully to what we have received from God but, and here's the second implication, it is also desperately important to make sure that we will be justified on the day of judgment. See that? He will judge every deed, which means every deed we do matters, and it's vitally, crucially, of eternal significance, the most important thing you will ever understand, that you will be justified on the day where judgment comes. If God will look at every deed and declare righteous and unrighteous, then there is nothing more important than to make sure he will declare over you and over me righteous and worthy of the kingdom of God. Nothing more important. The Bible is clear over and over and over again. The only way to be sure God will declare over us righteous and welcome in his kingdom is to entrust our lives to Christ Jesus. It's the only way if you stand before God as you face eternity under your own merit, banking on you being good enough or doing good enough, you will fail hundred percent of the time. Every time I don't good. I don't care how good you are at tests. Okay. I'm very good at tests. You will not pass that test. James two says, if you break one little inkling of God's law, it's like you're guilty of breaking all of it. You will fail. I will fail no exceptions. And so what is our hope that there is one who was truly righteous? Jesus, the son of God. That God has made a way for us through faith in him to be welcomed into eternity with God so that on that day of judgment where he will judge every deed, even the ones in secret, all who trust in Christ, the scriptures promise, will pass the test. Not because we're awesome, not because we did enough good deeds, not because we made this life truly count, not because we're worthy of God's kingdom or worthy of being justified, but because Jesus stood in our place. That's the good news of the gospel. Ecclesiastes, like all of scripture, points us back to Jesus. Him on the cross, taking the judgment of God on our behalf. That though he was righteous, holy, without sin, perfect. No secret thought, no word, no secret sinful thought or word or deed in his entire life. He who was righteous became unrighteous for us. He became sin. He took our wickedness, our unrighteousness, our secret thoughts that you would rather no one ever know that you will take to your grave. Your secret deed that no one knows and you will never tell a soul. Everything you have thought, said, or done contrary to God's design got nailed to the cross with Jesus. He became sin. He took our sin. He bore the full punishment and judgment of God so that if we believe in him and trust in him and surrender our lives to him, fear him with that familial fear of reverence and awe, God will declare over us on that day, not guilty and unrighteous, not even guilty but forgiven, not guilty. That's the good news of the gospel, that God would not look at us and go, all right, like you messed some stuff up, but because of Jesus, like, I guess you get a passing chance. That he actually looks at us clothed, as the scriptures say, clothed in the righteousness of Jesus. He doesn't declare over us, yeah, good enough, or yes, guilty, but forgiven, that he actually speaks over us what has always been true of Jesus, righteous, welcome, clean, holy, pure, new that's the good news. So when Ecclesiastes says, hey, fear God, do what he says. Why? Because every deed will come into judgment. It means first and foremost, we have to trust and surrender our lives to the one who gives us the righteous verdict. And then out of that saving trust and fear, what do we do? We do what he says. We obey him. We trust him not just for our salvation and our eternal destiny, but we trust him enough to receive what he has given us as the good life from him, that he is present with us, that God is here, that he stands over our lives, that he's working, that he goes before us, he comes alongside of us, he is in us, he comes behind us, and so we don't resign ourselves to vanity or to life under the sun. We don't give in to cynicism or naivety or autonomy. We do not rebel against how mundane life is because God is here with us, and it all matters matters. He is in the mundane. He's present. And so this is your whole duty. Fear God and do what he says. Here's how I want to close. I want to close. Uh, Growing up in church, we used to sing this hymn. Um, I don't know if if you're familiar with it or what your church background is, but I thought it'd be fitting to kind of read this over us. And what the, the chorus says It's very simply, it repeats it time and time again, like old hymns do. It says, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. And I want to make sure, just a minute, I'm going to read this over us as a prayer, but I want to make sure you understand what that to be happy in Jesus means. It doesn't mean, therefore, everything's going to be awesome. It doesn't mean, therefore, you're going to be nothing but smiles for the rest of your life. It means that you have an invitation in the trust and obedience to Jesus for this pervasive sense of well-being infused with hope because of the goodness of God. And that's what Ecclesiastes has been driving us to. And he says, here's the summation. If you want the good life with God, here's the good life. Fear God and do what he says because God is present and Christ will return. So what I want to do is, if you want to close your eyes, if you want to open your hands and, and kind of this practice that we have of a posture receptivity, I just want to read this hymn over us and then lead us into prayer and response. I just want you to let these words sit as you ponder and contemplate the lessons of the past six weeks, as you contemplate how they've satisfied you, stung you, stabilized you. You contemplate the goodness of God and the invitation to fear him, to trust him says this when we walk with the lord in the light of his word what a glory he sheds on our way while we do his good will he abides with us still with all who will trust and obey trust and obey for there's no other way to be happy in jesus but to trust and obey not a shadow can rise, not a cloud in the skies, but his smile quickly drives it away. Not a doubt nor a fear, not a sigh nor a tear can abide while we trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Then in fellowship sweet, we will sit at his feet or we'll walk by his side in the way. And what he says we will do, where he sends we will go, never doubt, only trust and obey. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to live the good life with Jesus but to trust and obey. And in that famous bridge, maybe you've heard it, tis so sweet to trust in Jesus just to take him at his word just to rest upon his promise, just to know, thus saith the Lord, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him and how I've proved him over and over. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. Let's pray. Lord, we Ask in prayer the words of the hymn. We recognize that it is sweet to trust in Jesus. It is sweet to take you at your word. To rest upon the promise that every promise of you finds their yes and amen in Christ. So, Lord, we acknowledge brutal honesty and pain. Life under the sun without you is vanity. It's meaningless and it's painful and it feels unfair and it hurts and it ends. It feels like all too quickly. So, we just acknowledge that. Don't shy away from it. But we also acknowledge your presence you are here with us, that you have not left us in the vanity, you have not left us in the rebellion, you have not left us in the sin. You've come from outside the sun to enter into the vanity. You died, Lord, so that we would have hope. And on our own, Lord, you know we don't stand a chance to face your judgment on our by ourselves, we don't measure up. By ourselves, we're not even close to on the same register of good enough. And yet Christ came, took our sin, died our death, bore our punishment, rose again to give us life in you. And so we trust you, surrender our lives to you. And out of that surrender, Lord, we want to obey you. We want to believe the world lies when it tells us the good life is anywhere else but in trust and obedience of you. Help us to be a church that lives the good life. We love you. We need you. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said.